We remember our first, our first loves, adventures, heartbreaks, our first discoveries and moments of independence. And then there are the first we encounter in entertainment and culture. The book that describes scenes which conjured emotions that we have felt but have never been named. Sitting in a dark theater, watching images that previously existed only in the private spaces of our lives or imaginations. The inner voice that sounds like yours. The way you find joy. The same kind of desire. The tender intimacy of two black men. A family like the one you came from. The food you eat. Queer love. The traditions you celebrate. An HIV-positive person depicted as a whole person? Your language as the first language. Those types of first are often hard won. The result of years and sometimes decades of a battle to get something made. The result of pushing back against invisibility. To get enough people in power to believe that a story is worth being seen that the people it speaks of will be recognized and understood by a wider audience and that the storytellers will be celebrated. That is why when these first emerge, they are remarkable both for those who made them possible and those who witnessed them. And why it is so important to ensure that firsts are not last and that they become one of a multitude of experiences and identities that cascade across our stages, our pages, and our screens. What's up, y'all? This is Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen. An in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, the first season is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. It's the late 90s, and I am back home um, in Camden, New Jersey, probably on break, if I can remember correctly, on break from school. Um, I was a freshman at Seton Hall University, And the place is the bathroom. And I was in the bathroom of my parents' home um, because I was reading Elon Harris's Invisible Life. And I was so nervous. I was so fearful about people finding out that I was reading this book that was centered on the lives of Black gay men. Um, And I just remember being like this, the bathroom being a sanctuary, a space where I would go and hide, really. I was, I was so fearful. I would hide and read this book. And, and while reading the book, I would be so intensely, intensely pulled in um, by the, the sexual relationships that were, that were depicted in the book. I was, like, turned on. I mean, I, like, I, I was in my mind. I'm thinking, this is what the hell I want. This is what I want 
in my life and on these pages, someone has written out uh, the type of life that I would love to see myself living. I found safety in Elon Harris's words. And I also found, you know, a bit of trepidation in that I felt like he was exposing all of the things, the images, the, the, the sort of thoughts and feelings that, that were inside of me. I felt seen in spite of the ways that I had yet to see myself, in spite of the fact that I was unable to look in the mirror and to really be, uh, to, to love the black gay boy that I was um, looking at in the mirror and that that love was present in the book. But it also made me feel very human. It humanized black gay life. Some of the people in the in the book did some horrible shit. <laughs> you know, um, there were, there. It, it reminded me that the sort of dream of like black gay love would not necessarily be perfect. Um, I learned about the fact um, that one can be black and gay and still have shitty relationships, <laughs> still cheat on their partners, um, you know, walk around and really hate the self, the body that they were living in. But I, I will say that um, I'm so grateful. And I know Elon Harris, according to stories from like his peers, like James R. Hardy, who was a friend of mine, talked about how hard it was for them to get their books on the shelves of major bookstores. So I don't know all that he had to go through, all the courage it took to lay bare like the stories of Black gay life, Black queer life, Black bi people's lives in that way. But I'm thankful he did because I found myself in his words. So what is the story behind the story? What is that invisible struggle to get something made? And who are the people who fight it? Why are we still fighting to baptize our own spaces? Lee Daniels, Academy Award-nominated filmmaker, and Jordan Cooper, playwright of the critically acclaimed Ain't No More. Jordan, you're in the process of trying to bring um, Ain't No More to Broadway. Um, you got a, a, a several other projects that you're working on right now. Um, just what's, what has that been like for you? And Lee, for you, you're also like, I'm so glad you referenced um, the Billie Holiday film, this United States versus Billie Holiday. I'm just interested in what motivated you to return with this story. And I just big shout out to Lawrence, my, um, my Bristol on that show, my brother, Lawrence yeah. Washington. Um, but start with you, um, Jordan. Let's, you bring in Ain't No More to Broadway. What's it been like? Uh, what are sort of the hurdles? What are you, what are you experiencing? And then I'll go to Lee. Um... It's been challenging. Um, it's been challenging to move it uptown, um, mainly because the play itself uh, is is so black, <laughs> and the audiences and the producers and the and the people who own the theaters are not. My goal for Broadway is like I want it to look like more house in Spelman Homecoming. Like I want it to like mm-hmm. be that kind of takeover. And the problem is that we don't have a white central character. We don't have a white character at all. We don't, you know what I mean? So it's like there's nothing really for white people to really grab onto and be like, ooh, that's me. You know what I mean? I think it's it's just been difficult. And it's never because of the work itself. That's what's frustrating is because it's never because of the work itself. It's always because of the politic, mm. right? But we're getting closer and closer to getting there. And I, I was talking with Lee about this the other day. It was like, you know, um, when I wrote it, I never even thought somebody would produce it, let alone it would it would go to Broadway. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like with each kind of place and each step that it takes, I just want it to be a baptism of the space. Mm. 
I wanted to kind of shift, like, even when you walked in the Ain't No Mo Off-Broadway, like, the first thing you heard was back that ass up in the pre-show music, you know what I mean? It's like, I wanted to be, because I've worked into so many theaters that were about me, that were black shows and written by black playwrights, black queer playwrights, but yet I didn't feel like it was my space. There was no, there was no baptism of the space for me. Access to Broadway, to financing for your movie. What is the significance of the no? Who preserves power and how? Wesley Morris, Pulitzer Prize winning culture critic for the New York Times. You know that the no is not just a no, it's a system. And it's a system to prevent firsts from ever happening. And it is definitely not intended to have a second. So you get through once, there's going to be another whole line of defensive tackles ready to try to take you out. The thing that makes firsts possible is the no. Understanding what the insecurities are with people not wanting to share power. Share power, not seed power, not give anything up really, although that's a conversation that we could have about like what, what needs to be just seeded. But just in terms of like creating some kind of equity for people within, if we're talking about filmmaking, obviously that extends into dozens of other areas of American life and culture. If you do break through the line, if you are the first, what is the price? What do we pay to finally be seen? Lee Daniels. What are also the costs that come along with this journey that you all are on to not only shift the way that Black people are seen within cultural context, but also to create a world in which we can be free and alive? Like, what are some costs that you all experience? You know, it's, it's, it's a heavy conversation, man. It's, it's a very painful and heavy conversation to talk about. I mean, it's bad enough that I got to deal with some racist motherfucker out there that's gonna stop me from my creation coming to life. None of my films have ever been embraced, including Billie Holiday, by the studio system. You know, I've had to raise money for all of my films directly, myself. And um, and so I can tolerate that, I guess, but I, what I don't like is, uh, you know, being shunned by my own people for being gay. And that's the first, you know, you know, I'm out there doing it alone, you know. Is there an antidote? How do we give voice to our most vulnerable selves? If we have to fight from without, dismantle systems, break lines, become first, seconds, thirds, how do we find love from within? Michael Jackson, the first Black playwright to win a Pulitzer Prize for drama for his acclaimed musical, A Strange Loop. So it starts this way. It goes, No, Toya's husband hasn't been fucking on me, and I haven't been fucking on him. They're happily married, and that's not about to change anytime soon. And while there is not currently any semen in my stomach, yes, I'm still all off into the homosexualities. 
But all that really means is that on the rare occasions I do end up taking my clothes off in front of someone, it's usually for some raggedy ass white man who gets to nut all over me even though all I really want to be is with a black man who rides for me as much as I ride for him. Especially when the anti-black world we live in gets so strung out on this colorblind love is love bullshit, forgetting that love is love will never be true until black love matters and black lust matters and black queers can finally stop using white men to flatter or elevate their fucking class status and start buying into how sexy and liberating it could be just to be with each other. But sadly, those black queers are as stuck social climbing as I'm stuck licking up whatever stale white crumbs I can get my hands on, which is why now is a great time to explain to you that every time you drunkenly ask me if I'm attracted to you because I'm a man and you're a man, I get infuriated, not by how ignorant that question is, but how much it actually bothers me to know that I probably am too fat and too black and too ugly and too feminine to be a nigga you even theoretically want to dick down if you were gay and not my blood. Which is just how stars for black affirmation and affection I am. And why I don't feel one iota of black boy, joy, equality, whatever the fuck it is, anywhere in my body ever. Which is nobody's fault but my own for never asking for what it is that I need or being accountable for my own bullshit, I know. But just the same, worth saying out loud at least once. And that, in a nutshell, is my personal life. The reason why I chose this monologue is because it's a moment of unabashed and articulated rage from a Black queer man that is exposing his most vulnerable self, but from a place of centeredness. As much as this character thinks something is like, that something's wrong with him, he's demonstrating without even being aware of it why he is extraordinary. That, to me, is the ultimate way to show representation, like the kind of representation that matters. That it's not just enough to be seen in your skin, but to actually fully embody your own values and contradictions and rages and joys. And for me, that monologue does that. Systems of oppression, prisons, education, healthcare, entertainment. How have the biases of the American entertainment industry shaped us? Where do we find the power to change it? Wesley Morris and Michael Jackson. You had essentially for about 70 years, 80 years, white people defining what black people were to American audiences uncontested by actual black people. That's a powerful thing. They had 80 years to define what and who we were. And there was nothing to love in those definitions. And they got there first. They were foundational. They created every stereotype of a black person that we have today came out of the blackface minstrel period starting in 1830s and continuing to this day, essentially. But that's seven or eight decades of just constant live entertainment built around and focused on the worst possible ideas of Black people. And not only that, but that, you know, we should remain enslaved because it's better for the country, better for us, and 
the enslaved people liked being enslaved. It was their preference. So you just have this mechanism that is sort of designed to create an impression of who Black people were that's still with us, that we are still fighting against in these small psychic ways, in these large, you know, somewhat legislative ways. We are still trying to keep laws from being repealed and to get things reinforced. The pressures of capitalism are always on us. And therefore, the pressures of racism are always on us. And the pressures of homophobia and transphobia and ableism and imperialism and all these systems are always on us. But we also have a choice about how we are going to navigate those systems. And like for me, the the choice that I made is that I'm a theater artist and I'm a writer. And like in my writing, I have control over the narrative. And like, if I'm gonna go into storytelling that hopefully gets amplified in the theater or in television or film, I can put whatever is in there and what's going to be in there is going to be the sort of questions around the tensions that I feel by those systems on my body. And like, when I put those things into the work and I get to tell those stories on a stage or on film or on screen, hopefully if I'm doing my work, The audience can feel the energy and the tension of that, and it can affect them, and it can empower them, and it can energize them to then go out into the streets and make the revolutions that they want to see. And that's why I think theater in particular is so powerful, because it's shared people coming into a space to feel the exchange of energy that then can change them or it can spur them toward change. It's a process, it's not an overnight thing. But that was like one of the things that I loved so much about A Strange Loop and doing it at Clarence Horizons with Page 73 Productions was that there were like fat black gay men in the audience or just black gay men in the audience who would come up to me and basically say, your show was a mirror. And then there were like little old white ladies from the Upper West Side who would come up to me and say, your show was a window for me. And that both of those people and groups could have, could see the same story and, and absorb, you know, the experience of a Black gay man realizing that nothing is wrong with him and sort of coming out of the valley. I find that to be a useful way of potentially bringing people together, which I think is needed in order to thwart the very systems of oppression that affect the character and the author. There are firsts that speak to seconds, thirds, and beyonds. They inspire us to keep creating. They link artists a generation apart so they can eventually find communion and their work together. Lee Daniels and Billie Holiday. When I was a kid, the movie that motivated me to, that inspired me to become a filmmaker was Lady Sings the Blues. Mm. I had never seen two Black people in love Mm. like that, that were beautiful like that, that were brown like that, that were, um, he was just so fine, she was just so fine, and the fashion was everything, and the 
The music was everything. And I understood it, you know. Being of a certain age, it spoke to, I smelled the streets of Harlem. Mm-hmm. I understood the pig's feet and the collard greens in the cooking. I understood Richard Pryor's humor. I understood the addiction because I had lived with so many of my relatives that were addicted to heroin. I understood the nuance of what that movie was about. Even at the helm of a white director, Barry Gordy was all over it and Suzanne DePass was all over, over it. They were riding that director to the black experience. Very few things have shaken me. And that was one of the things that shook me at a really early age. And um, that inspired me to do Billie Holiday. I mean, I really wanted to tell a story. And then I found out what she was really about. So before I, before, so I found out what really was going down. And I listened to Billie Holiday, Diana Ross's music. I thought that was Billie Holiday. And it wasn't, <laughs> you know, I started right. buying real Billie Holiday music. This is a fucking snooze. I was falling. <laughs> I was like, I'm 13 listening to Billie Holiday. This shit was, what the fuck is this? I want Diana Ross <laughs> to sing that shit to me, you know? And, um, and then, uh, and then I grew to love her. I grew to understand her. And I knew that there was a disconnect. And so before doing the movie, I, I spoke to um, Barry Gordy because I was so nervous. Because this is the holy grail for me, guys. For it's sure. like, wasn't nobody, there were no black films that were like this. There was no love story. There was nothing like this ever. Mm-hmm. It was a moment. Yes, there was, um, there was that movie with Harry Belafonte and uh, Dorothy uh, Dandridge. What was that movie? Carmen Jones. Carmen mm-hmm. Jones. There was that. But other than that, there was none. This was a seminal moment in black cinema. And so I went to Barry. I said, listen, I'm doing a movie. And he said, I said, is it okay? He said, yeah, you have my blessings. And just make sure you tell the right story. So I just made sure that everything that I told on that screen was accurate, everything. And when SLP wrote the script that, um, you know, she had all the facts and all the receipts. And the reason for Strange Fruit, you know, I had no idea that Strange Fruit was going to be, um, that we would be in a situation where that uh, we were right now in America when we were shooting this movie. I had no idea that we were, um, there would be an awakening and that we were ahead of the game. It's almost like Jordan's play, Ain't No Mo. Mm -hmm. He did that before all of this. And that's what makes it. I, I, I did Billie Holiday, the United States versus Billie Holiday before all of this. It was like God was leading me to do this and having it come out right now is, uh, yeah, it's crazy. So it was written by a commie <laughs> and nobody wanted to sing the song, Strange Fruit. And he gave it to Billy and Billy didn't really know what it was at first. And then she got it. She didn't give a fuck. She was like, you know, she was a G. The She was like a G on another level of G, right? And so she knew that nobody was going to do it and, uh, and that she had an obligation to do it. Mm. And so uh, she sang it, and it was about black men being lynched. The government saw that white people were responding to it. The, the New York uh, elite were saying it was the right thing to do. White elite were saying the right thing to do. It was the first civil rights song ever, mm-hmm. ever. And she was becoming, you know, low-key a civil rights leader of whatever that meant at the time. And uh, the government wanted her stopped. And, uh, and this is movie is about the government stopping her and ultimately killing her. Mm. 
Southern trees bear a strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Here's a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the tree to drop. Here is a strange and bitter crop. Violence against our bodies, against our very selves, lynching, incarceration, criminalization, vilification, the war on drugs, hypersexualized, marginalized, exposed, COVID 19, HIV. These are strange fruits. Michael Jackson on his Strange Loop. I mean, the story of the Strange Loop is about a black gay man who's a musical theater writer who works as an usher, who's writing a musical about a black gay man who's a musical theater writer who's an usher, who's writing a musical about a black, like, and so on and so forth. And as part of that story, he is confronted with, from his family, a lot of homophobic ideas about what his outcomes might be, one of which is that you're going to get AIDS if you continue on this lifestyle. And in my writing the story, that part of that was like me exploring just in my own life the ways in which this expectation of HIV AIDS was put on me, but also looking at my actual community and seeing the ways in which HIV AIDS was impacting a lot of other Black gay men. And then going to like church and feeling like sort of homophobia there, and then going to see Tyler Perry's confessions of a marriage counselor. And the way that HIV/AIDS was depicted in that fictional piece, and feeling angry about it because of how irresponsible I felt that that was, and then in the show, sort of trying to deal with all of that as sort of just a satire and sort of commentary, and then in the midst of that, I find out that a very dear friend of mine is HIV positive and has been HIV positive for over a decade, has not told really anyone, and has not been taking any medication. And I find out that he's sick when he's in the hospital dying. And that, for me, suddenly made HIV AIDS like such an even realer thing for me. And like I ended up dealing with that in the piece because he like he died like a month after I found out. It, it just struck me that like there are all these systems of oppression that existed that made the end of his story possible. But the other thing that made it possible was also just the fact that those systems also made him feel like on some level his life was not worth living. And that if God wanted him to live, he would live. And if God wanted him to die, he would die. Like that's what he said, he told me that. And so for me, the only way I sort of knew to deal with that was to weave it into a story that is also a story about my own life as an HIV negative person who nonetheless is that part of that one and two statistic. 
Like, if there's one in two black gay men may become HIV positive in their lifetimes, then if he was one, I was two. For me, making that as explicit as possible and, like, making it be, like, sort of expressing that, like, as an HIV-negative person, I had skin in the game. That it's important for me to be more than an ally and more than an accomplice, to be someone, like, a human, another human person, like... Being representing, expressing, sharing, like advocating for, like making those complications and those sort of inequities front and center. So, why do we keep creating? What pushes us to fight for these stories and for ourselves to be seen, to be recognized? to be defined in the ways that we choose. Lee Daniels and Jordan Cooper. I want to read a quote from Gordon Parks, who y'all know was, in 1968, was like the first Black person, Black man, to direct a major Hollywood film studio. And he said, I picked up a camera because it was my choice of weapons against what I hated most about the universe, racism, intolerance, poverty. And I'm just interested, why do you both pick up the camera and the, or the pen and both? And Lee, we start with you. Why, why do you pick up the camera and pen? It's really difficult to pick up the camera or, or to, to pick up the pen. It's really difficult to... to um, I want people to know that are like me that they're not alone, you know? Like, if that makes any sense at all. Like, I, I pick it up so I don't... Like, my world in my head is... Um, People see my work and they go, oh, my God, it's so great. I, I understand these people. I understand these worlds. I understand these situations, you know. But when I try to articulate them to people, to studios or to uh, production companies, um, they say I'm a freak. It's not, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't relate. I want people to know that there are um, storytellers that think like them. Mm-hmm. That makes any sense at all. I don't know whether that makes, that makes sense. Jordan, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Okay, so now your turn, Jordan. For me, I pick up the pen and the camera to ask questions and to challenge my own answers. I do it to to heal myself, you know? I do it to heal myself, too. Yeah, yeah. I do it. It's, it's, it's therapeutic. Yeah, sure. it really is. Because I, I, I tell people, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not Jesus with two fish and five loaves of bread. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want to eat, too. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what I'm doing whenever I create a work is because I have this hunger. I have this, this question. I have this need. I have this healing that, that, that needs to be, to be fulfilled. And I'm eating, right? But it just happens that I make enough for whoever wants to come and sit down and have a play to have a play with me. So every time there's a new audience watching a play or every time somebody presses play on, on a film or a show or episode or something, it's us eating together. Together, together for those big screen front page sell out the show kind of first, where the audiences are many and what you have to say can, if even briefly, take center stage. And those first are important because they rip that no apart so that we can be seen and others can follow. 
But those aren't the only firsts that matter. They aren't always on a stage or in a headline. Sometimes they are quieter, but no less powerful. And those are your, yes, your first. The ones in your life that were hard won. The first time you claimed your sexuality. The first time you shared your whole self with someone you love. The first time you disclosed a status. The first time you named yourself. Maybe there were people watching or it might have been for you alone. But either way, it changed something. For you for others, and for the ones who come after. So we keep fighting for our firsts. 